Welcome to the Walk Worthy Podcast, a podcast by Hesper Baptist Church located in Cambridge, Ontario. Our local church exists to make disciples who walk worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God the Father. We hope and pray this is encouragement to you and to anyone else you would share this with. Thank you, Scott and team, for leading us in song this morning. Let's just pray for a minute here before we dive into our text this morning. Lord, it is our prayer that all of our days would bring glory to your name. And it is only as we are rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ that that can be true. And so we pray, O Lord, that you would help us by your word to be ever conformed to the image of heaven's beloved, Jesus Christ the Lord, in whom is our salvation. There is salvation in no one and nothing else other than Christ alone. Our sins are putrid, Lord, in your sight. But grace is abundant as we turn to Christ Lord, as far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our transgressions, our sins from us, if we would but turn to the Lord Jesus. And so, Lord, may we see Christ even through the plague of the gnats this morning. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Encyclopedia Britannica provides us with the following definition of a gnat. Gnat. Any member of several species of small flies that bite and annoy humans. Several non-biting insects, such as the midges, which resemble mosquitoes, are also sometimes known as gnats. In North America, the name is often applied to the black fly, midge, fungus gnat, biting midge, fruit fly, and other small flies that hover around the eyes of humans and other animals. In Great Britain... The name usually refers to mosquitoes or, less commonly, to crane flies, end quote. Small, pesky bugs. (laughs) That's that's what a gnat is. Mosquitoes are found in this category. Black flies are found in this category. Some people would even say that lice are found in this group, especially as we look at the translation of the word gnat in Exodus chapter 8. Small, pesky, annoying bugs. So here's our question this morning. What do four short verses about these small pests teach us? If all of Scripture is profitable, and we believe that all of Scripture is profitable, then what do gnats teach us about the living God? How do gnats help us to understand what life and godliness looks like? Well, if you were to turn to the 105th Psalm, I don't suggest that you do right now, but maybe perhaps this afternoon, if you were to turn to the 105th Psalm, this is a psalm of praise, you would see that the psalmist tells us that we should praise God because of his power displayed in a variety of events. And this psalm is written so that God's people will remember all the great and mighty ways that God has worked in the past. And as this psalm lists out all the different ways that God has worked throughout salvation history, one small, perhaps insignificant line to the reader stands out to me this morning. 
God worked to display his power through the gnats. Psalm 105, I think it's somewhere around verse 26 to 30, somewhere in that range. But if you look at the preface of the psalm, why is it that the psalmist is reminding us about the gnats and the darkness and all these plagues and God's, God's covenant with Abraham? Well, let me just read the front of this psalm to us. The first six verses, which set the tone for the rest of the psalm. The psalmist says this, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength, seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments that he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servants, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. The psalmist wants the people of Israel, the readers of this psalm, the singers of this song, to remember all the mighty deeds of the Lord and ascribe glory and honor and praise to his name. God is a powerful God, and so remember all of these things that he has done. That is the point of this psalm. This is the very point of the plagues as well. If you're to look at the definition of a plague, why did God send the plagues Upon Egypt. You would find a part of that definition in Exodus chapter 7 before our text, and you would find a part of that definition in Exodus chapter 9, the chapter after our text. And what we would see is that Yahweh inflicted his 10 plagues upon the people of Egypt so that this would happen Egypt, Israel, and all the peoples of the world would know that Yahweh is God. That's the point of our whole sermon series, that all the world would know that Yahweh is the living God and that there is no small g God like him. He is the big G God. He is the only true and living God. And in this, in this plague specifically, we are meant to see the omnipotence of God, the fact that God is all-powerful. You'll notice in the third verse of our text this morning, we're in Exodus chapter 8, verses 16 to 19. In the, uh, sorry, in the fourth verse, verse 19, even the magicians have to acknowledge that there is something supernatural behind what they are seeing happen in Egypt. As the gnats are released, the magicians go, there's something supernatural happening here. This is the finger of God, God being a generic term for something supernatural. And I pray that as we go through this text this morning, that we would, two things would happen to us. Number one, we would bow down and worship before the God who is omnipotent. That we would see his power and glory on display through the turning of dust to gnats, and that we would bow down and worship him as a result. And secondly, it is my prayer that we would see the danger, the devastation, the turmoil of a hard heart. That's what we see at the end of this plague once again for the third time. And that is what Holy Scripture summarizes as our need as we look to this text this morning. I hope you're already there. Exodus chapter 8, let's read these four verses and move our way through the text this morning. Verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, this is after the plague of the frogs, 
Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not, so there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this is the third plague or the third sign and wonder as Exodus calls it. And remember that the plagues unfold in three series. Remember, uh, you know, you're probably used to watching series uh, on, a tel- on you know, the television or via Netflix or something like that. And so we have three series here. And each series has three episodes to it. We've got the first series, the plague of the blood, the frogs, the gnats. And then we've got season two, the... Um, and, and there's the episode of the flies, the livestock, and the boils. Then we got season three, the episodes of the hail, the locusts, and the darkness. And then there is that season finale, that sort of two-hour episode that comes out. And it is the plague of the death of the firstborn sons. And at the end of the first, we are at the end of the first season. This is the last episode in the first season, and God wants to impress upon us through this text, through this third episode in this first series, his great and his mighty power. And specifically in this episode, he wants us to meditate on two realities. And if you take notes, these are the two places that we are going to in the text. He wants us to meditate on his mighty power, and he wants us to meditate on man's mighty obstinance, man's mighty hardness. God is powerful. Man can be hard. Let's look at number one, verses 16 to 18. Let's meditate on Yahweh's mighty power. Stephen Sharnock, a Puritan in the 17th century, wrote two volumes on the existence and attributes of God. If you ever want to read them, they're in our library. They're classic works. And he gives a glorious definition at one point of God's omnipotence, God's power. Here's what he writes. He says, the power of God is that ability and strength whereby he can bring to pass whatsoever he pleases, whatsoever his infinite wisdom may direct, and whatsoever his infinite purity of his will may resolve. In other words, God does whatever he wills. All his works are a demonstration of his mighty power, even turning dust into gnats. That's what we see in the first three verses of our text this morning. God's mighty power. And as we behold the mighty power of God, there are three particular features of God's power that we are meant to see in these first three verses. Three particular features of it. First, we are meant to meditate on the mighty power of God in creation. Do you see it in the text? It's important For us to recognize as we read through these 10 plagues that these are de-creation events. They mirror the creation event in the early chapters in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God creates. And then in these plagues, God decreates. So for instance, in Genesis, God creates light out of darkness, day 1. In the ninth plague, God causes there to be 
darkness, decreation. Vegetation is created on day three of creation. But it is destroyed, that vegetation, in plagues seven and eight as locusts and hail hit the earth. In day six, God creates animals and humans. But in the plague accounts, animals and humans are destroyed. There is decreation in the plague narratives. God's creative power is on display even through decreation in the plagues. We're also made to think of God's created power through some of the imagery in the text. Do you see it in, in, in verse 16? Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it might become gnats in all the land of Egypt. Dust of the earth. God creating from the dust of the earth. This has got to sort of set off an alarm bell in our head and we go, where have we heard that before? And our brain goes back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, where God creates from the dust of the earth, what? Man. And so here even there is this allusion to God's creative ability. Friends, as we see God creating gnats from the dust, we are meant to worship the God who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is within them. He makes gnats from the dust. Not just a few gnats, gnats everywhere. The, dust, uh, the, the text actually clarifies this twice. They were on man and beast. And just in case you didn't get that the first time, they were on man and beast. All the dust of the earth filled, <laughs> filled all of Egypt with gnats. Hesler Baptist, note this well. Yahweh is the all-powerful creator. And marvel of marvels, he does not need the dust of the earth as pre-existing matter in order to create. He created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, ex nihilo. Psalm 33, verse 6 tells us, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. God spoke and said, let there be light, and there was light. God spoke rivers into existence. God spoke the mountains into existence. He spoke elephants and ants into existence. He spoke the acorn squashes into existence. There was nothing. God speaks, and there was something. And this is not the way that we create. When I'm trying to explain this to kids, I, I use the following illustration. I say, okay, kids, if we want to create chocolate chip cookies, what do we need? List off the ingredients. So, you know, we go through it. Well, we're going to need some eggs. We're going to need some flour. We're going to need some chocolate chips, some baking soda. We're going to need some butter, and maybe you'll throw a little bit of vanilla in there, right? Okay, we got all these ingredients, right? We put them in a bowl. We stir them up. We throw them in the oven, and boom, we've got our chocolate chip cookies. Our creation depends on the created. We need ingredients, but God opens up his mouth and speaks the world into existence. And all that he makes is good. I'm just coming to the end of a Worldviews course. I'm taking a Master of Divinity right now. And uh, one of the required courses is this Worldviews course where we sort of serve, survey the scene of different worldviews. And in one of the lectures, the professor points out the fine-tuned nature of the universe. And one of the facts that he gave that I just thought was astounding is he said, if a neutron were not 1.001 times the size of a proton, 
all protons would have decayed into neutrons or all neutrons into protons, making life impossible. And, and, and he starts to list off facts like that that make existence possible. Our universe is fine-tuned. It is well-made. It has a good designer. Things are so intricately woven together that if we are to disturb the fabric of what God has created, the fabric starts to unravel and life begins to become impossible. You look at the human cell. There is an irreducible complexity to the human cell. In other words, everything found within the cell that composes its parts is necessary to that cell so that human life can exist. The universe has been made beautifully. The universe has been made wonderfully. God is a great creator. And all of this work points back to him in praise. And the psalmist can't get over this. I wish I could have read through every single one of the psalms and surveyed this theme of God's created power in every psalm and just tried to highlight all those verses in my Bible and compile them and give you some sort of data because the psalmist can't get over this reality. Again and again, he praises God's creative power as he beholds the intricacy and the beauty of the universe. Psalm 8, 3 and 4, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above proclaims his handiwork, day to day pours forth speech, night to night reveals knowledge. The psalmist is saying all of creation screams that Yahweh is God. Psalm 104, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Psalm 147, he determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Friends, does God's creative power cause us to marvel? Does it inspire us to worship? Do we take the time to observe the intricacies and excellencies of all that he has made? And do we take the time to give him thanks? I was at a conference a number of years ago, pre-COVID, so a little bit, a little few more years than actually I'm remembering. The, the speaker gets up to the front and he says, just, just think about the excellencies of God in creation. He's like, think about a strawberry. It's like, cut that thing in half and take a look at the little core that's in the middle there and you know, zoom in with a magnifying glass and see all the different filaments, the water-holding filaments that are in different positions all throughout. They're almost this crystal-like structure inside a strawberry. God made that. He designed that. And we're just talking about a strawberry. <laughs> then lift your eyes to the heavens and see the stars. Feel the heat of the sun upon your skin. It, study the human body for five minutes and behold your God. God's creative power is on display through the place as we witness the fact that they are decreation narratives and as we see God turn dust into gnats. And so we're to meditate on God's creative power. Secondly, this plague causes us to meditate on God's power in judgment. The plagues are judgments. 
We find this label given to the plagues in Exodus chapter 7, the chapter before, and as God is describing how he will deliver the people of Israel out of Egypt, he says to Moses in 7.4, if you've got your Bible open there, take a look at 7.4, he says, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. This is a great act of judgment. Can you imagine what this was like? The term dust of the earth is hyperbolic. Not every speck of dust becomes a gnat. But as we think about this term, dust of the earth, we've heard it somewhere else before, and, and, and the, the bell should ring, not just Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, but we've also heard it communicated to Abraham. Remember, Genesis 13, verse 16, when God tells Abraham, he says, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. In other words, I'm going to give you a lot of offspring, Abraham. Dust of the earth, yeah, that, that's a pretty tricky thing to count. Thus shall be your offspring. Well, here we see the dust of the earth turned into what? Gnats. Oh, there is a great multitude of gnats. There were swarms of gnats in every house, in, on the street, everywhere, biting, landing on you, likely preventing sleep. No one would have been left unscathed. Everyone would have had bug bites. Friend and I went on a, a big hike last year, and uh, we decided to pack light. And so what we did was we took, instead of a tent and sleeping bags, is we took something called a bivy, which is essentially just like a zip-up um, sleeping bag that goes around you that's just made out of mosquito netting so you don't get bit. And you just insert yourself in that thing. You can, you can, like, you can um, fold it up so it's like the size of your hand. You throw it in your backpack and you're not carrying any weight whatsoever at all. And we were trying to do this hike quickly and so we just, we just threw ourselves in the bivy, went to sleep, got the hours of sleep that we needed and then started walking again. And he said to me, he said, okay, we're going to do that so that you know, we've got you know, lightweight throughout this hike but you're also going to need to bring earplugs. Earplugs, why earplugs? Well, because the mosquitoes are so thick and, you know, they're around. And you're going to wake up at times in the night because there will be so many mosquitoes around your bivy because they smell you and they want to suck your blood. And he's like, you're just going to need those earplugs and you won't think about it all night long. So I brought earplugs. Well, the first night they got caught up in the bear bag. So I heard the mosquitoes all night long. Second night, earplugs went in, didn't hear the mosquitoes. And he was right. There were clouds of mosquitoes around the bivy. Just, just terrible. You know what it's like to be in your room, shut the light off, end of an exhausting day. Put the light on again. All right, where's that thing? And you're going around with the fly swatter trying to find this fly so you can kill this thing. The dust of the earth. Gnats, you're not escaping this thing. You're all the time, every day. This is judgment. Behold the power of God in judgment. God showcases his power in unleashing small pests upon the people of Egypt. But think about God's power in judgment in general in the Scripture. God displays His mighty power all the time in Scripture through judgment. Think about the flood in Genesis 6. A universal flood wipes out the wickedness of the world. God causes the waters to rise that the wicked might be wiped out and the righteous preserved on that grace ark that Noah and his family inhabit for days. 
God's power and judgment is displayed. Think about the power of God at Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18. Fire and sulfur rain down on those wicked cities. And Abraham observes the next morning after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah that smoke went up in the land like smoke of a furnace. Here is God's power in judgment on display. And then we get to the book of Isaiah. And we look at this terrifying picture that is given to us of God's judgment. He says that the wicked are described as, 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 as jumping into crevices, trying to find holes in the ground that they might escape from the wrath of God for their wicked deeds. And then Revelation 6, probably picking up this language in Isaiah, pictures those apart from Christ hiding themselves in caves and among the rocks and the mountains and calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? It is a terrible sight. People see that the God that they have rejected, the God who made himself available and evident through creation and through revelation, is the God of all things. And on that last day, as God comes, as, as the second coming comes into being and, and into fruition, people are jumping into crevices and saying, rocks fall on me, something hide me. I am exposed before the living God. It is a terrible sight, and it displays the power of God in judgment. No one can stand up to the judgments of God. The omnipotent God is a terrifying judge for those who have not redeemed, been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Outside of Christ, God is a terrifying judge. All who challenge the rule and reign of Yahweh will be humbled. They will be brought low and destroyed. And that is what the Egyptians are experiencing. They are experiencing the judgment of God, God's power in judgment. And the Israelites will sing when they are delivered from Egypt and they've crossed over that Red Sea. In Exodus chapter 15, they will sing about how God shattered their enemy, how the power of God was on display in the destruction of the wicked. God's power and judgment is in view here. And if there are any here this morning who are living in rebellion to God, who will not bow the knee, friend, may I plead with you, meditate on the power of God in judgment. He does not play around. God is not to be trifled with. And let me ask you this, why would you continue to play Russian roulette with God? Why would you reject the one who will love you who will satisfy you, who will fulfill you, who will forgive you like no one and nothing else can. Bow the knee to Jesus Christ. As Psalm 2 says, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. His wrath is quickly kindled, but blessed are all who take refuge in him. In this judge is refuge we can find refuge from his judgment, covering in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his blood. And so meditate on the power of God in judgment. I think sometimes so often in church, we want to give such a positive message because that is what we have. We have the message of grace and reconciliation and forgiveness and a God who casts our sins as far as the east is from the west. We want to give that message. And so we just, we just you know, hang out in the house of, positivity all day long 
But sometimes we need to think about these themes like judgment and death, and those things propel us and push us towards these other themes of grace and love and the, the greatness of our God to forgive sinners like us. And so, friend, remember the power of God in judgment. But we shouldn't stop here. It's essential for us to go one step further as we behold the power of God in this text. We're not only supposed to see the power of God in creation and the power of God in judgment. There's one more power that we ought to see. We ought to meditate on the power of God in salvation. That is what the plagues are all about. And as we read these 10 plagues, we must see that God is redeeming his people Israel. All of the plagues point that way. This is all part of God's process of bringing a people who are enslaved out of slavery and into freedom to serve Yahweh and to love Yahweh with heart, soul, mind, and strength. God is using the plagues to this end, and so he is using mosquitoes to this end in this section of text. The power of God in salvation is at work as mosquitoes bite the Egyptians. God is mighty to save. He can defeat his enemies with gnats. Even the Egyptian magicians are starting to see the futility of their position as they admit that the supernatural is behind this manifestation. And once again, think with me about the Bible's testimony about the saving power of God. The Bible is one long narrative about God's saving power. You sit in the book of Genesis alone and you see that God saves a family during the flood. You you see that God promises to bless all the families of the earth through one man and his seed, Genesis chapter 12. God saves his covenant family from their own unfaithfulness all the time. It's this endless cycle in the books of Genesis. Hey, guys, if you obey me, There will be fruit, and there will be blessing, and there will be thriving in every way. And then what do Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, each of the three great patriarchs do? Well, they're unfaithful the very next chapter. It is the ups and downs of the people of God, and God saves his covenant family through unfaithfulness. God saves his covenant family from famine at the end of Genesis. God saves his people, as we see here, from slavery in Egypt. God saves his people from their enemies throughout their history. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. God saves his people from their enemies and, and themselves as they continue to be disobedient and unfaithful. God saves his people from exile as the Old Testament goes on. And at the height of God's saving power, as that is put on display, we see the sending of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation in Jesus Christ is ultimate liberation from captivity. Salvation in Jesus Christ is ultimate release from slavery. Salvation in Jesus Christ is the power of salvation on full display. And as we read our New Testaments, we have to see that. Jesus Christ is the power of God on display for the salvation of God's people. Jesus brings the spiritually dead to life. He, brings the un- he makes the unclean clean. He brings those who are walking in darkness into his marvelous light. He reconciles those who are his enemies and makes them what? His friends. Jesus brings those who were once far off near. Jesus fills the hungry with good things. The righteousness of Jesus credited to our account by faith justifies us before a holy God. Here's the big question of the Bible. How do sinners who are separated from God ever approach him? 
Answer, justification by faith. Oh, we are justified before this God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the power of God on display in salvation. And friends, if you don't know Jesus Christ in this saving way, let me encourage you, learn of him. Trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. He will reconcile you to God by the free gift of his grace. And all you need do, salvation is not by works. Salvation is not by, I'm going to outgive other people. I'm going to be so benevolent and generous and kind and good. No, 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 no. All you need do is cast yourself upon him and trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. Yahweh's mighty power on display in this text points us to these three categories. His power in creation, his power in judgment, and his power in salvation. But the response of the Egyptians is not the response that I have just tried to solicit from any who do not know Christ, which is a response of submission. The response of the Egyptians is hardness. And so even as we meditate on God's mighty power, we also must, as we get to verse 19, memorize, uh, meditate on the second thing. Man's mighty omnipotent. Uh, Obstinance. Notice two features of verse 19. First, the Egyptians acknowledge that the plague of the gnats has the finger of the supernatural behind it. That's all they are willing to admit, though, the finger of the supernatural. The term there for God, uh, it's capitalized in my uh, ESV. The term there for God is actually just a generic term. Um, you, you could also translate that gods. Um, it just, you know, it, it could refer to any sort of supernatural deity that's out there, obviously. All the other gods are false gods, and our God is the one true living God. But all the, all the uh, magicians are really doing is just saying, yeah, this is something supernatural is behind this. Secondly, the text tells us that Pharaoh hardens his heart. He would not listen. We've seen, this we've seen these words three times now. When kids uh, disobey repeatedly, their parents are often found saying something to this effect. Samuel... Why aren't you listening? Now, parents don't say that because they're wondering, how is it that the right data for you to make the right decision didn't sort of come before your vision or into your ears and, you know, down to your heart and make you want to obey? Did, did the right data not get communicated here? Did things not computing properly? That's not what parents are asking. Parents know the data got presented. It was verbal. It was, you know, sometimes physical as, you know, you're waving your hands in front of your kids and trying to, you know, like, hey, pay attention, let's go, right? The data got presented. The kid's not listening, though. The kid willfully, purposefully says, I see all that data there. No thanks. It, it'll be way more fun to lean on the screen door and break the screen door. So the dad's got to repair it. It'll be way more fun to touch the hot element and then have to hold an ice pack in my hand for the next few hours. It'll be way more fun to crawl onto the air conditioner and fall off the porch and then have to go to the hospital and get some stitches. Like, you know, like that's it. Why aren't you listening? The data got there, but the decision was made in a different direction. That is what is taking place here. Pharaoh heard all the data, everything computed. He saw the blood in the Nile. 
He saw the dead fish in the river as a result of the blood in the Nile. He smelled the stench of the Nile. He contended with the frogs that were inundating Egypt. He smelled the rotting bodies of the frogs. He'd been bitten by all the gnats. He had seen the finger of God at work and knew what he did. He took his own fingers and he stuffed them in his own ears. Mm Mm-mm. I don't want to listen. And we need to recognize at this point in the text, we've seen this now three times, that we have the benefit of a 10,000-foot view. We are looking over the landscape of Exodus 1 to 15, and we're going, Pharaoh is so foolish. Like, Pharaoh, are we going to really repeat this again? Are we going to preach another sermon on the plagues? The fourth sermon next week, and then a fifth one the week after, and a sixth one all the way till the end? Like, like Pharaoh, are we going to go through this rigmarole again and again and again? Like, submit, man. Your water has been desecrated. You're, <laughs> there's rotting frog bodies all over your land like you got the bug bites to prove it man like just quit it already listen we've got the benefit of the 10,000 foot view pharaoh your hardness is futile now let's take our 10,000 foot view and come down to our level here today because it's so easy to judge when we see the beginning to the end But sometimes we don't see this in our own hearts. And so let me just offer, in conclusion, four specific observations about our own hardness, our own obstinacy. And then let me offer four specific applications for us this morning. Four specific observations about obstinacy. Number one, our rebellion and rejection of God is futile. We see this as we survey the landscape of Exodus. Ten plagues? Come on. Pharaoh, you're never going to win out. And then finally, the plagues are over and the people are out of Egypt. And what takes place? Pharaoh is so upset, he chases after the Israelites, sees the waters part as the Israelites go through and says, let's slaughter them. What does God do? He crushes Pharaoh and his army. Pharaoh, it was always futile. Friends, our rejection and rebellion of God is futile. His purposes and his plans will win out. We can either bow the knee to God in willful adoration of all that he is, or we can bow the knee to him one day in subjection. Secondly, our rebellion and rejection of God leads to more disasters. Proverbs 28, 14 says, Whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Sin breeds more sin. Destruction, destructive patterns breed more destruction. By making concessions in our life that are sinful, we open ourselves up to more sinful concessions. When a big truck on the highway kicks up a little stone and hits your windshield, there, you know, there's a little fracture of the glass. We see it and we go, oh boy, I've got to get that patched or repaired in some way. If we don't do it, what's going to happen in a number of months or years? That thing's going to spider all over the place. It's going to grow. It's going to splinter. It's going to damage the windshield in even greater ways. Sin breeds more sin. Thirdly, our rebellion and rejection of God afflicts our conscience. The inner turmoil that we create by our own sin is horrendous. Our consciences afflict us. I was thinking about this this morning, and I think I'm right to say this. I think I agree with this statement. Yes, I agree with this statement. I would rather physical pain in my life 
than the sore affliction of my conscience. I've had my conscience bruise me rightfully before. And I would rather physical pain than the affliction of my conscience. Our obstinacy afflicts our conscience. Number four, our rebellion and rejection of God prolongs the discipline of the Lord. David describes the discipline of the Lord upon him after he slept with Bathsheba in Psalm 32. And he says, day and night your hand was heavy upon me. When we are hard-hearted, when we are walking in the direction of rebellion far from the Lord, God's hand is heavy upon us. We bear a weight upon us that is excruciating. This is related to the third one. It afflicts our conscience. It prolongs the discipline of the Lord. And yes, the discipline of the Lord is good. It is loving. It is grace. It's meant to draw us back to the Lord in faith and in repentance. But boy, is the process painful and unpleasant. That's what a hardened heart towards God cultivates. We reap what we sow. But let me just in conclusion get even more specific. I trust you see the care in these specifics as we go through them. The grace of God which calls us out of that which is sinful that we might turn to him. Look with me at four specific categories of application. Let me speak to the unbeliever sitting here today. You're being obstinate about not coming in submission to the God who has made you Let me ask you this question. Why go another day rejecting the God who made you and loves you? Why go another day living for those things that will rot, spoil, and fade, that bring happiness for a moment but can never satisfy? The invitation, friend, as we look at Pharaoh's hardness and as we climb down that 10,000-foot view and look at our own lives is come to Jesus. Be free. Know the grace of Christ Know what it is to, 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 to see fulfillment in its fullness in Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. In him is life and life to the full. He is bread that satisfies. There is no one like him. So if you are unbelieving and you are obstinately turning away from God and you are like, no, there are things in my life that are more desirable, more glamorous, more, more adrenaline-filled for a moment, Then the Lord Jesus Christ, friend, why would you be obstinate? Your life is short, 70 or 80 years you are given. Come to Jesus and know fulfillment in him. To the unbaptized sitting here today, why put off the obedience that our Lord asks of those who are his followers? Are you not convinced that the joy that is, uh, are you not convinced of the joy that it is to obey and serve your king? Is his grace not sufficient in helping you to obey where you are timid and weak? If you're an unbaptized believer, I just invite you to know the joy of obeying the Lord. Come to our baptism and membership classes in October. But do not be obstinate, do not resist the Lord continually in that way. Third, to the uncommitted person sitting here this morning, 
the person who sits on the periphery of the church, never plunging into the community of faith here, let me ask you this. Is not Christ's design for the maturity of believers being vitally connected to the local church a good design? Do you not think it's a good design? Do you, not, do, do you think that you're the exception to the case, friend? That, 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 that somehow I can mature in my faith apart from the way that God has orchestrated for believers to mature in their faith? Is not the encouragement and fellowship that our corporate worship provides, as Hebrew 10 tells us, worthy of us obeying the Lord and regularly gathering with the saints? And just think about this. Is my failure to gather, is my failure to integrate myself into this community, pride, rebellion, obstinacy? Fourthly, to the unrepentant individual in our midst this morning, those hiding sin, should not the kindness and patience of our Lord lead us to repentance? As we view His grace available to us, as we view the transformation that is available to us in Jesus Christ, is that not compelling? Does that not just let us lay before him our sins and see that truly he means what he says when he says, I will remember their sins no more. As far as the east is from the west, so far do I remove their transgressions from them. Come to that. Like, like that is available is the abundant and steadfast love of God not enough to propel us to turn from our wicked ways? Friend, look upon the Lord Jesus Christ and come to him with your sins. You know, oftentimes when we're dealing with sin, it looks a lot like health. Uh, sometimes when we're, we're, we're dealing with a toxin in our body and we go, okay, that needs to get removed. We, we take different medications or supplements or we change our diet in some way and what usually happens at first is there's a flare-up of the symptoms. Our skin breaks out with some sort of rash or there's some sort of psoriasis-like outbreak on our skin. There's a flare-up, right? Because we're going to deal with the problem. It's typically what happens when we confess our sin. There's a little bit of a flare-up but there is long-term thriving. The end of that journey is wholeness and wellness. Friend, confess that hidden sin to the Lord. Know the flare-up. Oh, it's going to cause a painful relationship for a bit. I got to tell my wife about this. I got to repent to my kid. I'm going to tell my kid that this took place and he's going to be mad at me for a minute. I'm going to have to tell this family member that I sinned against them in such a way or that I've been doing this and that and the other thing. It's going to cause a flare-up for a moment. And that moment might be months. But the end of that journey is wholeness and wellness and thriving in Christ. Friend, if you are an unrepentant individual hiding sin, come to the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness. Confess your sins to one another. That there might be what? Healing. And so let me say in conclusion, there is no one like the Lord. There are no ways like the Lord's ways. And if we are living outside of those ways, the invitation is to come and experience the thriving and fulfillment that the Lord brings. So come to Jesus. Come and serve Yahweh, the God of all power, and bow before him. Let's pray together.
Lord, four short verses have created pressure points in our hearts. And we pray, O God, that we would not walk away from here having heard your word and then leave into the disaster of failing to do what you have instructed us to do through your word. And so help us, God, to hear and act and obey. And whatever resources, Lord, we need to that end, I pray that we would avail ourselves of those things. Be glorified, O God, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.